You may wonder when it is that I honed in on my smart-ass skills as a superpower for good and not evil. Well, back in the 1990s, my hometown of New York City was a real-life landscape of the bleak and the boom. The dawn of the decade followed 20 years of continuous decay, and 1990 brought an all-time record high in violent crime. Concurrently, the Wall Street boom invigorated the economy, while hundreds of thousands of immigrants were flooding into the boroughs to join the overcrowded lines of need-based services. The fashions, fads, and even the films of the 90s are making a comeback. But how are we handling the needs that never left? And that is what we are going to tackle today. Hi, I'm Suze, here with your weekly dose of culture, values, and identity, and where we tackle those topics others may consider off-limits. A little about me, I'm a busy Gen X mom who, quite frankly, wanted to grow up like the Brady Bunch, but how could I being raised in the shadow of Schindler's List? So this means I've spent a lifetime navigating these mixed messages we get hit with daily. You know those conversations where we wonder if it's safe to speak our minds. Can we share our experiences, voice our fears and concerns, or should we just keep our mouths shut? Well, too bad. I need to know. But I'm no expert, so I'm going to schmooze the experts and get their thoughts. Why? So when we engage with our kids, colleagues, or the countless committees we interact with, we can do it with competence, kindness, confidence, and maybe a bit of humor. If this sounds like your cup of coffee, welcome to Schmooze with Suze. The Marion Hotel, the Cavalier Hotel, Bella's Place, Lexi's Place, my portfolio of properties to manage in some of Manhattan's most prestigious neighborhood was part of the family real estate business. And oh, did it sound glamorous. In fact, Nobody understood why I wanted nothing to do with it as soon as I got out of school. Nepotism is not a new thing, but sometimes it doesn't mean what you think. My secret was this. In the early days of data entry, my first after-school gig was on a luxury block, walking distance to Central Park, where my dad, Jerry, owned and operated HIV and AIDS services, homeless shelter hotels called SROs. My dad provided for my family by providing shelter to transient populations. It started with SROs, single-room occupancy hotels, because that was the isolation that AIDS and HIV meant in the 80s. He received a stipend from HASA, the HIV and AIDS Administration, for the housing. But what he gave away for free was the willingness to listen, because only then can we build the trust necessary to effect real change. By the late 90s, he expanded into providing shelter to homeless families with children, and I was not involved in the least. Until my dad got sick with shingles, and I swooped in to handle it because that's what firstborns tend to do. And I knew that in order to be little Jerry, until he got back on his feet, I had to model his method of building connection. My guest today is a trust builder who is working on cracking the code of care to one of the most misunderstood groups we are challenged with as a society to build connections. Dr. Colleen Bell, Medical Director of Salzbacher Center. Hi, Colleen. Hi, Susie. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being on. 
We met several years ago through our spouses. I had transitioned from real estate to early childhood education, and I was very removed from the current statistics of homelessness. But you shared that stopping the revolving door of homelessness was in fact your passion project, and I have been following you ever since. Can you tell me how you got into this? Sure. So, you know, I, somebody was asking me the other day about getting into this line of work, and it's not something I always, I, I guess I wouldn't have thought I would be doing this sort of work, but it's something I've, I've evolved into over time. Um, you know, when I was in high school, I knew I wanted to be a physician. I didn't really know what type. Um, medical school, I really found myself drawn to the stories, um, you know, that people had. And I, psychiatry is, I think, one of the fields of medicine left where we really get those stories. You know, mm. somebody that has schizophrenia or de- depression, you know, their story is is different. Um, and it's not the same thing over and over again you know, like you might have with you know, someone that's diabetic or has, you know, hypertension. So I found myself really drawn to the stories and, you know, the resiliency, you know, of those clients. Um, when I was in my residency program in Pittsburgh, I did a community psychiatry fellowship. And one of them, one of my rotations was doing a street medicine elective. Mm. Um, where we'd be out in the community. We worked with um, individuals who they actually would hop on the trains and kind of ride the country um, on the trains. And, you know, so that was kind of the community that I worked with during that rotation. Wow. But um, I, I just, I loved it. I really loved seeing people in their environment. I really love seeing people that other people really wouldn't see. I really like being able to provide um, a service uh, to them. Um, it takes time to build trust in the poor, um, you know, with the individuals, but I just, it just really spoke to to my heart and, Gosh, I've been trying to do it ever since. So, and Soulsbacher is a perfect place in which to to be because that's what I get to do. It's exceptional. I remember telling you anecdotally that back in the '90s and 2000s in New York City, the Department of Homeless Services and all the social workers would tell homeless populations to move to Florida where the weather is better. And by the time I met you, I said, from the looks of Jacksonville, it appeared that they had done just that. So how long have you been here? And did you, in fact, notice an increase during that time period? Yeah, so I've been in Jacksonville since 2013, and I'm proud to to call it home. And we love it here. We we want to stay here. We're raising our family here. Um, I Definitely, it's increased. Um, I think particularly with COVID and the housing crisis, there is just not a, enough affordable housing to go to people that you know, have well-paying jobs, you know, let alone people who, who really have not a lot of resources. So, yeah, I would say it has increased um, since I've been here. I'd say the need for mental health and substance use treatment is just continuing to skyrocket. The good news is um, I do feel a lot more people are willing to talk about it and the stigma is not quite as severe. I really that to me, one of the silver linings of COVID was everybody was going through something mm-hmm. during COVID. We all were you know, at home with the kids or, you know, trying to work from home or, you know, what have you. And I think we all were going through kind of this collective trauma. So a lot more people are willing to say, you know what, you know, maybe I was drinking too much, you know, maybe I need to get help for that. So I I do feel that tide is turning some, which is great, but then we need to have the services in place for people to go to, to access uh, the help they need. Okay. 
So what I'm hearing is that the acknowledgement of mental health awareness is the first step. It's understanding that this is something that affects us either directly or indirectly by association, whether it's our loved ones or the community that we live in. And same as you, this is where I've chosen to raise my children. And, you know, this is where our community is situated. And so we're hyper-focused on where we live and how we can affect real change. So 35 years ago, when I first became intimately aware of the homelessness in New York City, I was blessed that my parents, who I worked with at first, modeled a generosity of spirit with the residents, some of whom suffered from mental illness, whether it was from late stages of of AIDS or it was veterans that had PTSD. There were people who were drug addicts or prostitutes. And my dad would crack jokes and he would buy them coffee and he would give hugs. There was a willingness to communicate with everyone my parents interacted with. And because of that, I was never fearful. So by the time I worked my way up to director of operations for several facilities, this had become a calling. And I had some favorite residents Um, And what that meant was that when they wandered off the grid, someone noticed. I noticed. And I followed up with their case managers. And so if someone would present into the homeless population with a case number, it wasn't until I started to talk to them and get to know who they were that I would be able to see what the next step in services and needs were. So... I started to discover those recurring themes. Can you tell me some of the recurring themes that your clientele seems to require the services for? I'd say trauma is number one. Um, you know, there's estimates in the, the jail population, um, which we do serve with our mental health offenders program. The rates of trauma can be 75 to 85 percent um, people that have a mental health concern or are in prison. Um, So we do need to recognize the elephant in the room is trauma. It shapes the brain. Um, You know, growing up, if you're experiencing a lot of traumatic events, it has, you know, significant impacts on the way your your brain develops. Um, So I think that that's one Um, that leads into things like self-medicating. People will turn to alcohol and drugs because they're trying to get out of the way they feel. Yeah. Um, it's a way to kind of numb the pain for a while. So I'd say that, you know, the trauma can lead into that. It can also make people more predisposed to develop um, illnesses like schizophrenia um, and depression and, of course, PTSD. So it's, um, I'd say those are kind of the the main, um, you know, things that I see. Um, what I do also notice with the population that we work with is that a lot of it is significant social isolation. They are not welcome in everyday society. Now, they do a lot of times form their own society and their own communities, you know, out on the street and people that they they hang with. But, you know, they're not welcome in stores. They're not welcome, you know, to be in parks around kids. It's just, you know, because they, they may present as dirty or they may um, have an odor to them. So it's that I think is the most painful thing for me to see is how ostracized that they are. And yes, they may have significant mental illness, but, you know, people do better. We all do better when we're around people that care about us, you know, whether we admit that or, or, or not. Um, and humans are social creatures. We're meant to be in societies. We're meant to be around others. And when you're not allowed or welcome to be around others, I think that's what really what really drives people to, to you know, they'll continue to use and, and be high all the time or, um, 
it's just it's it's painful to see how we don't have a place in our society for people that are that are different. Um, so that's what we're trying to address at Soulsbacher, and we try to you know re reacclimate people back into society. And it can take some time if you've been living on the street for ten years. Being enclosed by four walls is not something that's appealing. You know, even if it's your own apartment, we've had people who've been homeless so long that the thought of being inside is is traumatic to them. So we've got to gradually sometimes work people back into to to being and living and functioning in a society. But it is it is possible. Um, it is very possible. So going back to where I started, when my dad first got into the shelter business, he independently enhanced it at the time by recognizing that in order to decrease the rate of recidivism, meaning people who got out and then ended up back into the shelter system, he had to provide them with basic independent living skills, right? Those things that you're talking about, it's the hygiene skills, it's the Mm -hmm. communication skills, uh, because they were lacking after so much hardship right? So in an effort to keep them from relapsing, it had to be built into the system. It wasn't just taking them off the streets. And we talk often about the correlation between recurring jail time and this never-ending downward spiral. Can you tell me a little bit about how your mental health offenders program recalibrates the expectation of what homeless mental health looks like in today's world right so what we're trying to do with our program and what we do do is to reduce people that are you know going in and out of the system um you know people that have been arrested numerous times we had an individual that was arrested 97 times in three years for misdemeanor nuisance type crimes like trespass so we really try to focus on keeping people um you know stable in the community providing them the resources and supports you know, so they're not they're not going back into different systems, whether it be the central central receiving facilities, whether it be the jail, whether it be, you know, the emergency rooms. We're really trying to keep people, you know, give them the support so that they don't need to access those kind of acute crisis type um, resources. Um, you know, and, and some of the things, you know, we do are, are pretty simple. Um you know, it's really trying to engage with people to let them know that, you know, we'll be there for them, um, whether it's having kind of their favorite snacks on hand, you know, or, um, you know, obviously visiting them frequently to to give them the support if they're in a motel or they're in their own apartment, um, helping them with things like how do you prepare food? Um, because really, again, a lot, for a lot of these individuals who have the severe and persistent mental illness, you know, a lot of those, like you talked about, day-to-day life skills have fallen by the wayside. And, you know, it takes time, some, mm. you know, and having patience, um, patience is, is huge, you know, and really meeting people where they are, not where we want them to be. Because you can't expect somebody who's been living on the fringes of society, you know, to all of a sudden just, you know, be able to to make it in everyday society. You really have to, to extend that grace to them and, and to believe that they can do it, um, but also give them the supports necessary so they can do it. And you keep showing up, which is something that's so important. My daughter, she had a teacher who taught her that practice makes permanent. Does We're not looking for perfection. We're looking for permanence. What is the criteria to get into this program? 
what is the process from onboarding through graduation, so to speak? What is the success rate? Can you tell me about that? Sure. So what we can do is um, we can take individuals. Uh, Jacksonville Sheriff Office created a list of people that had four or more misdemeanor level arrests plus a mental health flag in the system. What we quickly realized that when the jail was putting a mental health flag, it was very obvious they had a mental health illness, like, you know, not by choice, but so far everybody in our program has been schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. So people that come in very psychotic, it's very easy for, for anybody to notice when somebody's not reality based. So um, that's something we noticed early on. Um, so they do have to have um, a history of multiple arrests. And then um, what we do is we screen them. It is a voluntary program, so they are fully free to refuse us and a fair bit uh, do refuse us. Um, we go in offering a lot of resources, but a lot of these individuals have been, kind of, they've, they've fallen through the cracks of multiple systems. They have no reason to trust me or my team. You know, they don't know us. Um, they could think we're making these, you know, wild claims that, oh, yeah, we're going to get you um, your disability benefits. We're going to get you in housing, you know, and if the relationship isn't there, you know, you know, and they're they're used to being in their environment. They're used to being on the street. You know, it may not be appealing to them. Um, unfortunately, the ticket in is an arrest, a misdemeanor level arrest. So once somebody who is on the list is arrested on a misdemeanor level offense, we get notified. And that's when the screening starts. All the cases are vetted by um, a representative from the state attorney's office. Um, and then we partner with the public defender's office, um, the judges, um, you know, really uh, J- Jacksonville Sheriff's Office, um, tons of different partners to to make this a success. If it was just Soulswalker doing this program, it wouldn't work. So it's a collaborative um, so effort, effort. It's a collaborative effort for sure. Um, and the way we have it structured, it is, a, it is a court program, so they do have to come in on an arrest. So that doesn't mean go out and get arrested, <laughs> but, you know, chances are the, the population that we're targeting They've been arrested numerous times, so sooner or later they're going to get arrested and then we can go ahead and screen them. Um, we do have a magistrate. We have our own court, sort of like um, mental health court or drug court. We have our own treatment court that's headed up by Magistrate Brady, mm-hmm. um, and that's roughly every two weeks um, we do that. So I've heard it said that the distinction between Magistrate Brady and probably everybody else is that personal interaction that she graces each individual with to get to know the narrative in their story. Have you ever seen that before in your career? Well, I would say I haven't worked with all that many judges. So I, and magistrates, the only situations where I have has been a, a, a Baker Act involuntary commitment type. So it's sort of a different animal. I don't know how the other treatment courts operate, but I do know one of the other judges for the mental health court, Judge Eckley Mulder, is wonderful. And actually, she has she helped start the um, she helped start the mental health offenders program. And then Magistrate Brady kind of is the one that does the every two week court, which she's she's over it. So I would say um, in terms of support from the judges, it's enormous. The chief judge, Judge Mark Mahan, this is his. He's one of our biggest champions. This is one of his, he wants us to be his legacy. So I would say really the support that we have, I, I don't know if other communities have it, but I would guess not to this level. Um, I, I really, I really think we have all the ingredients here to make, to make this really be a, a, a national model. 
So between Jacksonville City Council and the state of Florida, you've received a total of $1.3 million to run the program for now. How many participants were in the pilot program? How many do you currently serve? And how many will this allow you to serve? So the pilot was 20, um, and that was funded through the city of Jacksonville and Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. We got roughly $400,000 to serve the 20. Um, since then, we've been able to partner with our managing entity, LSF, who's given us about half. And then the city of Jacksonville and the sheriff's office has also continued their support. Um, so we are able to take up to 40 at a time in the active phase. Um, and you mentioned graduations. Um, and I can give you some statistics about how many we have graduated. Ah. Sorry to, to lean off. Um, but... So if you just give me one second. Of course. We love to celebrate graduations. We just um, we just presented our, our numbers for 2022. So we came into being in 20, February of 2021, but I have our updated numbers. Um, so at the end of 2022, we had 16 individuals that were active participants and 14 who had graduated, officially graduated from the program. Um, we did have one pass away of natural causes uh, during last year, um, and we did have to suspend three participants during 2022 um, for various reasons. Um, of the people we worked with, um, the 29 um, total for last year, um, about 86% are now receiving federal benefits, so getting people hooked up to, to disability. Um, based on the severe level of their mental illness, you know, they, they tend to have a pretty strong case. Um, and then the other 14% are pending their benefits prior to being diverted into MHOP. So before they came to us, um, almost 76% of them were street homeless. And then 24% of them had some form of housing, not their own. We don't have anybody that had their own housing, like their own apartment, but a lot of them had, but of the 24%, some had been living with family and things like that. Um, since we have, um, since they came into the mental health offenders program, Almost 90% are in permanent housing and 10% are pending permanent housing, but they are housed um, usually in a, in a motel as a temporary um, um, spot for them. We've been able to show um, cost savings uh, to the city. Um, just for example, um, the participants in 2019 cost roughly $124,000. Um, and in 2022, that dropped under $10,000 in, in community costs. Wow. Um, that, we, that we figured out. So um, arrest rates have also plummeted. We've been able to decrease the arrest rates um, last year in 2022 um, by 92% of these individuals. So we do occasionally have people get arrested, but for the most part, once they get in the program, it's very few and far between. Um, the cost of booking has decreased 92%. Um, the day in jail cost has decreased by 87%, um, as well as um, a lot, some of these individuals used to get Baker acted directly from jail. It's called the DN7. It's That's a legal term for people that were on a misdemeanor level charge, but based on their mental illness, um, they were referred for a Baker Act exam, and we've been able to cut that to, to zero or 100% drop. So um, I think these are really impressive numbers. You know, you know, people like me get excited about helping people and doing good work and, you know, getting people stable and living in the community. 
you know, but we also have to look at it from a, a financial perspective as well. You know, how are we benefiting, you know, mm-hmm. the city? How are we benefiting taxpayers? Dollars well spent. And, you know, I am very proud to say that I think that this is something everybody can get on board with. It's a win-win for everybody, whether you're looking at it from a cost savings perspective or the human perspective, you know, everybody's going to win um, with a program like this. Most importantly to me, the client, but um, really as a community, I can't see one way that, you know, it wouldn't benefit somebody. I agree. And from somebody who's been looking at this for nearly three decades, personally, I can't tell you how impressed I am to see somebody that I know personally really be the change. You and the people that you work with have done the heavy lifting, which is going out there and asking the questions and getting the answers and building the trust. Because Back at the beginning when we talked about how my dad would buy the coffee and give the hugs when no one was hugging people. And I remember watching that happen and something deep in my brain resonated. And here we are generations later. And I've often said that I can't go downtown with my son DJ without him having all sorts of snack bags and extra coats and blankets with him so he can hand out. And I think that that's when we talk about who's scared and who's uncomfortable. We have to reframe it that as global citizens, maybe not fearful, but how can we be of assistance? I want to thank you again, Colleen, Dr. Colleen Bell, for being here, for being the change. Can you tell us two things? One, upcoming events, and two, how we can find out more about Salzbacher Center. Sure. So Salzbacher, we are having, it would be a great way to to meet the staff. Um, We are having on Tuesday, May 2nd at the Casa Marina Hotel in Jack's Beach. We do our annual um, fiesta um, at the beaches. Um, and that supports homeless and disadvantaged people in the community to get the health care that they need. Um, so that's one way. Um, we also have a website, soulsbacherjacks.org, that lists our different services and programs. Feel free to peruse that. Um, and there's uh, links to contacts on there. If you have any questions about volunteering or getting involved in any way, just, just let us know. Fantastic. I really appreciate your taking the time to speak with us. It's time for our honorable mensch. Mensch is the Yiddish word for a person of integrity and honor with a sense of what is right and responsible. This week's honorable mensch is Tom Trout. Since the 1980s, Tom used his company billboard to provide over 2,000 messages of inspiration, humor, empathy, character, and faith. His thoughtful prose was the highlight for many drivers who passed by on I-95. One of the drivers even wrote him saying one of those messages saved his life by reminding him that his life had value. Tom passed away last month at the age of 95. His sons will keep inspiring motorists and say that the messages will be an ongoing tribute to their father. The week he died, the message happened to say... Be the person you want your children to grow up to be. If you know of someone who is the kind of mensch who should get an honorable mention, send me a note at schmoozewithsuze.org or drop me a line on Instagram. That's going to do it for us today. Thanks for sticking around. Make sure to subscribe to Schmooze with Suze on YouTube and follow me on Instagram to get your daily dose of chutzpah. I'm Suze, your well-informed smartass who's not afraid to stand up and speak out because 
What's an envelope if not for pushing? Hey, stay inspired and inspiring.